Good morning, everyone. So uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, go ahead and put your hand up. We get one in your hands, and uh, you can follow along with us. And also, uh, if you do not have a Bible at home or one handy, certainly feel free to keep the one that we give you. We want that to be our gift to you so that you can read God's Word daily. Uh, we know that that is where we get uh, our hope. That is where we receive uh, the Word of God and, the, and all truth. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 8. Boy, it feels empty without all the women, doesn't it? <laughs> so, that's okay. That means you have to laugh louder, cheer, or you have to like, you know, say a lot of amens. Make it seem like, yeah, make them. So if they're, I don't know if they're going to watch it like coming back on their phones or whatever, but... Make, make it seem like it's really full and they're missing out. Just kidding. No, we don't want anybody to feel like they're missing out on the women's, when they go to the women's retreat. Okay, uh, Luke eight twenty two. Luke eight twenty two. One day he got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. Our merciful God, we give thanks to you this morning for raising the sun for us that we may give this day to worship and to honor you among each other and with your holy people around the world. May we fear you rightly and thus experience true peace which you offer as we hear your word. God, be present with us this morning as we examine the scriptures now. May your truth be illuminated in our lives as you speak to us. Reveal to us, O oh God, how we are to respond to hearing your word. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us your truth through the scriptures and that we would hear that, that we would heed and obey. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to your voice in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, of course, that there is no such thing as a person who fears nothing. We all have fears. Some of us fear really scary things. Some of us fear things that others of us would say, why are you afraid of that? And some of us are afraid of everything. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment began with Germany. And the Enlightenment was not a monolithic movement. We know the Enlightenment for its vast production of atheistic intellectuals. But many intellectuals of that period actually were ardent confessors, well, ardently confessed the uh, belief in God. But that said, many of the atheists were militant in their contention that the new discoveries of modern science 
had made the God hypothesis uh, an outdated and unnecessary because we could now explain the origins of life in the universe through the scientific principle of spontaneous generation. Here's where they get the idea. They looked at puddles and discovered that after a few days, there was movement in the mud from tiny tadpoles that obviously came into existence spontaneously. This is where you laugh, right? <laughs> Silly intellectuals, right? We simple-minded religious folk know that this violates the most fundamental principle of science, ex nihilo, nihil fide, nihil fit, rather, or out of nothing, nothing comes. They continued, these atheists continued to build upon this, and the principle has never been to honestly examine the origins of the universe objectively, but to disprove the existence of the Creator. As time went on, prominent atheists, men such as Frederick Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Ludwig Feuerbach, and particularly Sigmund Freud, found it troubling that if there was no God, why is it that as far as we go back in human history, there's always been a universal appearance of religion? Well, the atheists of that time theorized that religion was birthed of a psychological need to explain the fears and uncertainty that exist in the human mind. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, that we use it as a drug to dull our senses of the things that we find unpleasant and terrifying. Sigmund Freud argued that the biggest problem human beings face is death, and so we needed a way to explain why people would want to harm us or why we face natural perils. We needed someone to bribe and bargain with. We needed someone to blame for death in order that we could worship such a being in order to quell our fears. The worldview has only expanded to the point that somehow they believe that science must be begin with a presupposition that God didn't do it. And in fact, in the 18th and 19th centuries, they dreamt up the idea that the fact that all humans have held to some religion throughout history is proof that there is no God. What? Like, did you hear that? That's like saying that since all people have experienced an appetite for food, we call that hunger, right? Throughout history, that's proof that food doesn't exist. Right? Like, so if we have na a natural human response to something, it doesn't exist. By that reasoning, I can say that since being annoyed is a natural human, can, human emotion, we have proof that Bill Nye doesn't exist. Right? You get that? Bill Nye is a... No I'm right. Um, but... We need to realize that, what we need to realize is that the Enlightenment atheists changed one word in the timeless question of humanity. The question has always been, who controls the universe? We've always had this question. Well, the atheists couldn't accept that as a valid question and began asking instead, what controls the universe? Well, in our passage today, we see that God is big enough to answer both those questions, so ask it however you want, right? This morning, we're going to look at a response that the disciples had to their perilous situation, how Jesus removed them from that peril, and thus their fear, and yet they were still afraid. The disciples 
saw the power that Jesus displayed and it terrified them. The answer to who Jesus is based on his authority over a storm that could not be controlled by any natural command had them afraid and Jesus uses that as an object lesson. And Luke places this event right here in his, in his gospel to highlight the teachings that we have just heard from Jesus over the last few weeks. So let's dig in. Luke 8:22. One day he got into the boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. Well, I find the way that Luke moves from his illustration about how the disciple carries a lamp of his word into this event is somewhat curious. It says, one day. Well, what that tells me is that the timing of the event was not as important to Luke as the theme of the event. It very well may have happened around the same time. We don't know this for sure. We see the placement of, a, of this event similar uh, in Matthew 8 and in Mark 4. But that said, what's important is not when it happened, but how it connects what we have just read about the message Jesus was speaking about the soils and the lamp. If you recall the good soil, and you can see I still have soil up here. The good soil still looks pretty good, right? Um, and, and we see the good soils in reference to one who receives God's word and bears fruit because it's being cultivated by God. This is the true disciple. In the next passage, it was in the context of that true disciple that it would be absurd for someone who actually has the light to hide the light. Nobody does that, right? And in both cases, one of the key words was to hear, which, if you remember, is an active word meaning to heed or obey. So in light of that, we have an event that takes place here in Luke 8, 22 to 25 to enforce those truths. A few reasons here that we can assume we're still up in Galilee and we're in the Sea of Galilee here. First, there's no reason to take it out of the general time frame of where it's placed um, as we go through Luke 8. And also, the Sea of Galilee is prone to sudden vicious storms because of its location relative to the Sea of or to the uh, Mediterranean Sea and its elevation for some reason. I don't know how all of this works um, because I am not a meteorologist. There is uh, also um, the disciples, we want to remember, were very skilled, some of them were very skilled skippers. They knew these waters. They fished the Sea of Galilee. And so they were used to navigating the Sea of Galilee even in pretty rough conditions. Let's continue in verse 22 and 23. It says, So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, a lot's been made about Jesus falling asleep here. And the gross majority of that is just pure speculation like this. Like, well, he fell asleep because he knew the storm was coming, but he wasn't afraid of it, and the disciples were afraid of it because they didn't have enough faith. And he fell asleep because he did, because he... Okay, maybe that could be true. Why did Jesus fall asleep? He was tired. <laughs> right? This is all we can say through the assumption of the text. Jesus was both fully human and fully God at the same time. Let's not ignore his humanity here. Humans get tired and they curl up and go to sleep. Or they try to go to sleep like I did last night. According to Mark, he was... 
asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. Now, we're allowed to look at that homiletically and notice how Jesus was sleeping through the peril and then point to the fact that we can rest in the storm when we are in the middle of God's will. We can do that. It's homiletical, which just means it's a general word referring to the art of preaching. So we can go and point to this passage as we're making that point. But when we're doing exegesis, which is drawing out of the passage what's already there, we will note that resting in the storm isn't what this passage is about. Let me explain that. Well, first off, exegesis, you might remember this. It's a critical explanation or, or interpretation of Scripture that draws out what is there without reading into it our own ideas and presuppositions. Eisegesis would be the opposite. It'd be interpreting Scripture in light of what we already believe. Right? And we want to avoid that. It's kind of like when people say, David and Goliath is about facing your giants. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's just not. You want to use that as an anecdote? Fine. That's perfectly fine to do. But the passage is about faithfulness to God in the face of troubling opposition. David didn't kill Goliath. God did, first off. It's not about God giving us the strength to overcome a hard college class or a high electric bill or about being an overcomer when your job is hard and your boss is a giant jerk, right? You've heard some of these little word plays. David and Goliath is about David's faithfulness to God even when the rest of his people were too scared to believe God's promises. It's about David's zeal and courage in serving God, not overcoming his financial problems, right? David and Goliath isn't about confidence and leadership. Shadrach, Mekachek, and Abednego... Uh, similar story, they faced great peril as they were being thrown into, they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace if they didn't worship Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't boldly approach Nebuchadnezzar and say, ha ha, we have confidence. No. They humbly insisted that whether God delivered them or not, they would not bow to anyone but Yahweh, the eternal God. Right? It, it was humility. Right? In the same way, David was faithful and obedient. The same holds true with the storm. This is about the faithfulness of Christ's disciples. When we make it about Jesus believing that the storm will not destroy them and the disciples' concern over the storm being a lack of faith, what happens is that we oftentimes miss the main point. Not that those things couldn't have been true. They certainly could. But what did Luke intend for his original audience to understand? And what does God, who inspired Luke to write this down, intend for us to learn from this passage? Let's continue in verse 23. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. There's a very similar passage in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember last year around this time, we were wrestling with a, a different book. Remember what book that was? Anybody? Jonah. Very good. Uh, kind of a nautical theme. We started with, when I first got here last spring, we started with Titus. Remember that? Paul was writing to Titus, who was church planting on the island of Crete, which was full of what? Pir okay, we got one. We got one. Pirates. I said pirates. Okay. I, I'm sorry. First, first service wins. First. <laughs> right? 
It's full of pirates. Um, so that's, that's what God was working through the faithfulness of his followers, right? This is dealing with Titus, who was faithfully following God. And then we come to Jonah, and Jonah was not very faithful. In fact, God had to send a big fish to gulp him up and spit him back up on the shore where he was supposed to go, right? And he wasn't faithful, and yet God worked to save Nineveh through him anyhow. So, through his unfaithfulness. In fact, let's, let's read this. We're going to see some interesting similarities. Jonah 1, verses 1 to 6, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give you, or will give a thought to us that we may not perish. There's a lot of similarities there. What was going on with Jonah? Was he overcoming his giants? No. Was, was he lacking the confidence to overcome his troubles? Was he lacking the faith to trust God in the storm? No, he was in direct defiance to the command of God. He was running from God's authority in his life. Now, wouldn't it make a lot of sense for Jesus to use a storm like that one to address his authority to a bunch of Jewish men who knew the account of Jonah very well? Right? Wouldn't it make sense to put this story right here in the place where Jesus had just made some pretty pointed remarks about how the disciples will, would obey him? Keep in mind also that the raging storms are viewed as more than just weather, weather patterns in Jonah's day, um, and, and maybe even to some degree in the time of Christ as well. In fact, even today, what do we call a great storm sometimes? An act of God for insurance purposes, right? In legal terms, something we couldn't control. Also, uh, anybody think drowning is the way to go? Anybody, right? That's a horrible way to go, isn't it? Like we can all agree that drowning is like at the bottom of our list of ways to go, right? Now, the kids and I this week watched a movie, 13 Lives. I like to do that. It keeps them all seated in one place. We can sit and watch a movie, keep them all in one place, not from destroying the house when Denise is gone, right? We watched 13 Lives. It's about those soccer players that got stuck in a deep cave a few years ago. Do you remember that? So, um, and, and the kids, these kids had gone into the caves to explore 
these caves. They get a couple miles in there, and then a monsoon causes enough rain to fill the tunnels up and block them in. And this, so you have, they're over here in this little pocket, and the entrance is over here, and here's underwater, right? And they're caught there for 17 days as rescuers figure out how to save them. Anybody here afraid of drowning? Anybody also a little bit claustrophobic? This movie is more terrifying than the worst horror movie you've ever seen. Seriously, like, the, underwater, in a tight space, having to squeeze through these little, like, stalactites and stuff with all your gear on, getting caught, having to rip... Terrifying, right? In fact, they actually had to... They, they sedated the, the soccer players to get them out because if they were conscious they would panic and die, just like I would, right? Like, so they literally sedate these guys. So they're, they're asleep. They had an anesthesiologist that's a diver. I think it was an anesthesiologist that's a diver. Go in the other end and like anesthetize these, these boys to get them out. And the world's best scuba divers then swam these unconscious children through these underwater tunnels that are barely big enough for a human to get through. And they're like a mile and a half or two and a half miles in, something like that. That kind of thing just taps into the greatest fears that we have. Because everyone has some level of fear when it comes to death. But to die in any of the ways that was possible uh, to be the outcome of that situation is terrifying. Right? In fact, one of, the, one of the divers that was trying to rescue the kids actually drowned trying to save them. In this storm that Jesus and his disciples are in, they were in true peril. This wasn't just rough waters. Boats taken on water. It's not just rough water. It, I don't know if anybody like wait, uh, water skiing or doing any kind of water sports behind a boat. Love that stuff. We went on a water ski trip uh, to the river in August um, with the kids. It was the first time I failed as a father. I did not get any of them up on skis. But they got up on wakeboards, and, or not wakeboards, kneeboards and tubes and stuff. We'll try again. But anyhow, when you're water skiing, you want smooth water. And they make these boats now for like wakeboarders and wake surfers that churn up the water. I, I don't, like these boats have to weigh like 9 million pounds or something, and they're this big. They're, they churn up the water crazy. And... I'm going to be honest with you, when we're trying to pull a skier, that's obnoxious. Like, really? Um, and, and that's what it was. Well, this, here we're not talking about obnoxiously rough water. We're talking about deadly water, a deadly storm. Kind of like this one here. You don't water ski in this. Yeah. Me thinks that guy should get inside. Let's look at this guy here. He's, I think he makes it. I don't know. Any of you want to be on that boat? Listen, somebody speaks here. Left hand one's in trouble, Brad. I think someone's in trouble. Yeah, you think? That's... <laughs> This is, this is the context that we're in. It's this kind of storm, right? Not like, you know, obnoxious wakeboard wakes, but just, just 
deadly, not good. Let's continue in verse 24. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. They were not exaggerating the situation. It was bad. You ever been on an airplane during turbulence? Now, how many of you are not used to flying and that kind of scares you a little bit? Some of you guys? Okay. Uh, chances are the pilot up front doesn't even hardly feel it. Right? Because he's used to it, right? I, I have a private pilot's license and back when I could actually afford to use that, um, to get from the valley out here to the desert, we would fly through the Banning Pass. And uh, as you know, driving through the winds can be pretty rough, right? Well, the heat and the winds aloft through the Banning Pass uh, can cause extremely unstable air at times. And so I had a few friends with me one time. We're going to go get lunch in Palm Springs. We're flying through the Banning Pass. I'm just sitting here, la-di-da, you know, having a good time. Well, it's kind of like this, you know, and, and everything. You've done it, right? <laughs> right, Eric? Right? And I did, didn't even occur to me that it was turbulent until my passengers began to panic and turn green. Um, in the case of this storm, the danger was real. Experienced sailors, they were used to big storms. When, they, when it was a storm like that turbulence, they knew it was fine, right? But in this case, if, they knew that if something didn't change, they were done for. Right? The, the Christian Standard Bible puts it, we're going to die. Uh, the NIV says, we're going to drown. Right? And, and what this demonstrates is God's sovereignty here. He's in control. Just like I was in perfect control flying through that banding pass, I knew the bumps were just air. They couldn't hurt us. Jesus knew that the storm couldn't hurt them unless he chose for it to. Let's continue verse 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. How would you respond to that? I don't, don't tell me you would rejoice. I don't think that's the case. This is what R.C. Sproul said. He said, suddenly they were in the presence of something more terrifying than the violence of the storm. Can you imagine if there is a torrential storm right here up on this mountain, right? Devastating flooding. Boulders are starting to break loose and roll down the hill. Our roads are filling with mud and you can't get out. There's no escape and we're all going to die. And Pastor Clint comes up and goes, be still. Suddenly the sun comes out, everything stops, the mudslides stop, the water stops flowing, everything's good and we're all saved. You would be terrified of Clint, wouldn't you? So would I. I'd be terrified. I'm kind of scared of him now. But... Right? Only God can do that. We can try to understand science, but has anyone found a way to control the weather? No. I wonder what Karl Marx would say if he actually saw Jesus calm the storm. <laughs> Opiate of the masses. Come on, man. Verse 25. Luke 8, 25, he said to them, where is your faith? I don't believe Jesus is making any major criticisms of his disciples here. I, don't, I think he's setting up a, an object lesson. Uh, he's not taking a tone of disappointment. I think what it is, it's more about instruction than discipline. It's interesting that they were in peril and came to Jesus. 
Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Right? When we're in trouble, didn't that demonstrate that they trusted him? That they had faith in him? Well, sure. Right? Maybe to some degree at least, right? Once again, the story is as much about Jesus calming the storms in your life as David and Goliath is about facing your giants. Goliath wasn't David's giant. He was God's enemy who was defeated through God's use of an unlikely participant. The message here is not as much about faith in God as it is about faithfulness to God. Here's why. Let's finish verse 25. It says, And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even the wind and water? And they obey him. When Jesus calmed the storm, they didn't rejoice. They were terrified even more. The fear of God is a great blessing. Our God is a mighty and terrible power who destroys the power of all other fear. And he calls us his own. Nothing can happen to us unless it is first ordained by the one who loves us to the point of dying in our place on the cross. And listen, that's comforting. But it's as terrifying as it is comforting. Fear God and let that be your great confession. And, and in their fear, the disciples ask a question that we don't ask enough. Who is this? Do we meditate on who God is very often? Who is this that commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him? Only the power of God has that authority. Is it any wonder to us that that deadly fire began to burn down here and we began to pray for our mountain and as we prayed, God was stirring the waters and preparing far south of us a great force greater than the fire in the form of a hurricane traveling up the coast of Baja. And while our brave and our heroic firefighters were fighting, in some ways, a losing battle with that blaze as it jumped lines created by large firefighting aircraft, miracles of engineering, and great earth movers, and as our brilliant first responders strategized ways to spare life and property, God heard our prayers and effortlessly took over, and our mountain wasn't even touched. Amen. By the way, thank you to our firefighters. You guys are amazing. Yeah. Our God is a force that no fire can contend with. And yes, that brings us great peace and comfort. But why doesn't that terrify us? Psalm 46 says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The wind and waves fear God. We should not fear the wind and waves. The mountains tremble. tremble. We should not fear the mountains. But why don't we fear the God who controls all of those things? Sometimes we're irreverent. 
Oh, Jesus is my BFF, right? My best friend forever. Okay. I mean, yeah, we have intimacy with them. Or Jesus is my homeboy if you live in Hemet, right? We have absolute intimacy with Jesus if we've been adopted as heirs. If we have been chosen from the foundations of the earth, we belong to him. But that doesn't for a second Remove the demand for honor and reverence of our everlasting and powerful Lord and Savior. There's a worship song out there. It's a good song. Um, and it's been out for some time. Some of you have heard it. It was taken from the idea of an old hymn that was written by Horatio Spafford. And he wrote that hymn uh, it, right over the place in the Atlantic Ocean where his children were lost at sea when the ship that they were on collided with another and sank and they all drowned. The original hymn is called It Is Well. It is well with my soul. Remember when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Well the difference in the modern one is this. It evokes this particular event in this morning's passage it goes, grander earth has quaked, has quaked before, moved by the sound of his voice. And seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all, through it all, it is well. Here's the thing, though. The sea was not calmed for the disciples' regard. They're not at the center of the story. Sure, that, that could have been a part of it, but that's not the point. The point was to prove, prove his power so that they would see the demand for faithfulness and obedience on their part. Even if the wind and waves obey, if even the wind and waves obey, so should they. Jesus didn't calm the waves for my regard, but for his glory so that I might obey him. You see, the song makes God's power about his love for me. And that's not wrong, right? But, but the point of our passage is that his power proves his authority and we ought to fear him. One of the other lines goes, far be it for me to not believe even when my eyes can't see and this mountain that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea. Will it? Uh, maybe, right? But, but is that the point? What if it isn't thrown in the midst of the sea? Sometimes God takes us through the storm instead of calming it. And that's not to criticize the song. I, used, I actually used to play the song on the worship team in our church in New York. And, you know, it, it's not a bad song. I actually helped them, and, and it turned out by the time we were done, it was beautiful. We blended that song with the original hymn, really cool, but, you know, and, and we're allowed to see hope from other pieces of scripture in a passage that isn't near necessarily about hope, but when we look at a text, we need to know what it's saying in its own context. That's, the, that's important when we're reading the Bible. The wind and the waves obey him. We've seen up to this point in Luke that illness obeys him. 
death obeys him. We even saw that when he commanded the demons, they obeyed him. So why don't his disciples, why don't we so often? That's what this is about. The disciples saw the obedience of something that doesn't even have a mind. And yet, they had to come to terms with what they were willing to follow Jesus into. This is what Jesus says right before the passage we read today. In Luke 8, 21. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Do we tremble before our holy God? Do we have a cavalier attitude maybe when we come in here to worship together? Maybe, do, do we fail to recognize that this is an act, a holy act of reverent obedience that is to occur here in this room? This is holy ground. When we partake of communion, do we fail to understand the gravity of that act of obedience that we remember the body and the blood of Jesus who died for us? The Lord of the universe who created the wind and waves and controls them? Who went to the cross for our sins? The mark of the Christian, one who belongs to Jesus, is submission to him. Will we bow before him and obey our holy, powerful Savior? It's good we see God's power as a great comfort to us. We should. And we can even draw that as a homiletic application from this passage. But just like the parable of the soils and the illustration of the lamp, this is about hearing, which is heeding and obeying God's word. The wind and the waves obey him. Illness obeys him. Death obeys him. Even demons obey his command. And we don't always obey him. And that should terrify us. It shouldn't leave us terrified. Certainly not. But to start, it should cause us to be afraid. To recognize his power. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance is like fleeing. It's, It's turning the other way. Do you remember how I shared last week that as teenagers we used to wander around in the storm drains in Temecula? And we would get quite a ways in there, like Ninja Turtles, right? And, well... The goal was always to find where the tunnels started or find a way out from the other end or something, but we never got more than about a mile or two before we had to turn around. And the reason was pretty much the same every time. We, as, as we embarked on this journey, we would eventually run into something that would cause us to turn around. Anybody know what a red racer is? Anybody? Yeah, uh, he knows. Uh, they're indigenous to this area. There's lots of them. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a red snake. It's kind of bright red, and it's got kind of a dark, almost black head. And, and it's, a, it's a snake, and we would always run into one of these. And apparently they're non-venomous, but they're extremely aggressive, and their bite really hurts. We never stuck around long enough to see how bad their bite hurts, right? Um, And from what we understood, red racers will chase you down and attack you if they feel threatened. I don't know if that's true or not. 
but that's what we believed. So as soon as we saw the inevitable red racer, we would turn and flee the other way. Why? Fear, right? Fear. We turned the other way in fear, right? When we're told that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It isn't saying that we repent because of warm fuzzies. His kindness, in a way, is terrifying, if you think about it. Maybe not like the famous mafia kiss of death, but the fact that he is so kind to us should cause us as much reverence as it does comfort. Think about this. Think about your, just think about your last week. Think, think about the rebellion that we all participate in. And yet his kindness is what he addresses us with. That's a little scary. What are the storms in your life? Is it finances? Addictions? You have legal problems? Illnesses? Maybe you have teenagers? You know. Jesus never promised to calm those storms. He never promised to calm them. But he has proved, even in our text today, that he has authority over every one of them. The passage today isn't about how Jesus is going to deal with the storm. It's about knowing that he has absolute authority over the storm. And that should cause us a healthy fear that will lead us to trust and obey him. The story isn't about Jesus magically solving the problem. When we obey Jesus, we are recognizing his authority over the problem. The way to face our storms in life is not to trust God for a magical solution, but to recognize God's authority over the problem by obeying him. So we enter into a time of communion. I want you to look at the elements and see the power of Jesus to forgive your sins by his great sacrifice. That he's worthy of our reverent fear, that our reverence would, should cause us to obey him. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, or rather if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, we would ask that you would please allow the elements to pass you by. Paul warns us about receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So don't do that. In fact, in the, early church, in the early church, only baptized Christians were served communion. They would actually dismiss any of the Christians that were not, any, any of the people that were not baptized, they would dismiss them first, and then they would serve communion. 
So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, we'd ask that you'd let that pass you by. Uh, But we also would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because by participating in communion, we are confessing the lordship of Christ in our lives. And, And that we have received his free gift of salvation because of his great suffering. That he was beaten, crucified, buried, and rose again the third day. So please, if you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, please see one of us. See myself or Pastor Clint. Uh, Lance is over here. Um, We've got a lot of guys that would pray with you. Um, Please see one of us, and we would love to pray. For the rest of us, let us examine ourselves. How are we doing with obedience? What about our thought life? How about our service to to the church, to the body, to our neighbors, to unbelieving people? What about our giving? How about our attitudes, our tempers? The way we drive, how honest we are at work. How are we doing in obedience? Let us receive these elements this morning in thankfulness, but also in fear and trembling of the authority of our Lord that we might remember the faithfulness that he's called us to. Our holy and perfect God, we ask that you would help us to see your great power and authority and to rightly fear you. We bow humbly at your feet. May we revere and honor you And all we do in our waking and in our sleeping. And help us, O God, to hear and obey you. Teach us to trust you with the right heart. Not to come before you with irreverent and cavalier attitudes. O God, we thank you that even in our rebellion, you are working a weight of glory in us. Even when the wind... And the rest of creation demonstrate greater, greater obedience than we do. We thank you that your mercy overrules our unfaithfulness and your grace overrides our unbelief. We thank you for your word and for the truth of the gospel message. Help us, O oh God, to resist sin and temptation. Deliver us from the evil one and fill our hearts with both fear and comfort as we trust your authority and all the storms we must face in this life. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your sacred feast that is set before us. The Lord Jesus has removed from us the debt of sin that we bore and called us to follow him. And it is by your unending grace, O Lord, that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that horrible, terrible, terrifying, and yet beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive your holy meal in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.